This is an ABC podcast. I Am Australian is considered by many as Australia's unofficial anthem and this cover is one of a dozen new sound recordings that's just been added to the Sounds of Australia collection which is curated by the National Film and Sound Archive. It was originally written by Bruce Woodley and Dobie Newton and I Am Australian has been the theme for many big moments in Australian history including the 1999 Republic referendum and then again in 2009 on the National Day of Mourning for victims of the Black Saturday bushfires. This version is a cover. It was released in 1997 and it features Judith Durham, Russell Hitchcock and Mandaway Yanapingu. Every sound that was added to the collection today is something that's had great influence on or it encapsulates a snippet of life in Australia. So today, peppered throughout the show, I'm going to play you a handful of these sounds. And as we go, I'll explain why it's earned a place in the annals of Australian audio history. And just as a heads up, a couple of these sounds do include the voices of people who've passed away. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajak Country, Perth. You are, we are Australian. Now, the song I Am Australian was written in 1987, a time where you could still build a house in capital cities in Australia for less than $80,000. Imagine that. And you could still rent a house in inner city Melbourne for about $200. How things have changed since then. The cost of housing is a hot topic of conversation as the price of owning and renting seems to get further and further out of reach. The Rental Affordability Index published today illustrates just how constrained the property market is across all of Australia. Usually these reports concentrate on what's going on in the cities, but this time the focus is equally on what's happening in regional towns across Australia. Of all the states, regional Queensland is now home to the least affordable regional areas with places like the Sunshine Coast and the Gold Coast classed as severely unaffordable. National Shelter CEO Emma Greenholch joins me now. Now, Emma, this report does draw a fairly stark picture of what's going on in the rental market in Australia. And your organisation got the ball rolling on this nine years ago, I believe. Why did you believe it was important to collate this rental data now? We, what was happening at that time, uh, there were housing affordability, you know, in uh, indices, but, you know, they were focused on home ownership where for the people that we have a real concern about, which is, you know, low-income households and very low-income households, the private rental market is where they often have, you know, some um, particularly acute problems. So, so we worked with SGS Economics and Planning to establish the, the rental affordability index so that we could really be tracking over time, you know, what rents are, are doing, um, you know, across Australia, so both in metropolitan areas and regional areas, but also to, uh, you know, be able to sort of, I guess, find, um, finally sort of dice the data. So what one thing that the dashboard does for this is, um, you know, you can look at what rental affordability is doing, not just by locations, but by some different um, housing typologies. So it's not just about the average um, income for households. It also looks at those who are on, you know, lower and more moderate incomes. How much do you think, Emma, has the problem of a housing shortage in the city 
been then transferred out to regional Australia? Look, I think I think it's had some impact. I mean, I I would find it really difficult to sort of quantify that right now. But but I think traditionally, you know, people have you know been pushed into regional areas when housing has become you know unaffordable in capital cities. So you know they might go to a r- rural or regional area to find somewhere that's more affordable. But I think the other thing that's happened too. Is it's not just about that, but also about you know during COVID and we've had, saw you know the migration, you know interstate and intrastate migration, you know that was occurring during COVID. Um, you know where people were looking for that sort of tree change, you know, and sea change. In in times gone by, Emma, it would have resuscitated a town. You know, people moving from the city into regional Australia and towns that were having dwindling populations suddenly became more lively and things were going on. But in this particular circumstance, it's having different fallouts for towns. We've heard of people who've lived there all their lives suddenly not being able to afford a rent. Have you have you come across issues that you've not seen before in these last few years? Look, we, we've certainly heard that and we've certainly heard too. So with, um, you know, the Australian Local Government Association and their National Congress, you know, for the last two years, the local governments, you know, in regional areas bringing forward that their number one issue in, in those areas is about housing. And it's about housing um, where they're not able to, you know, secure a, a doctor, you know, for their GP or or counsel themselves are not able to, you know, recruit staff because that housing is not available. Um, so, so it's not just something where communities are seeing a social impact where, you know, people are having to move away, for example, but it's also having an impact on, you know, the economic pro- productivity um, of, of their towns and regions and also, you know, the ability for residents to receive essential services. Given that, do you see this is a real tipping point when you've both housing prices, housing shortages and rental rental prices at such a, at such high levels. Is this a tipping point for property in Australia and for government policy? Look, I, I think it really is. I think given that the magnitude um, is so, you know, the, the issue is so deep that it's also so wide and it is touching, you know, so there are so many touch points, you know, in the housing system. It's not just constrained to low income households. You know, I think we are really at that point that if we do not make serious attempts to turn this around, you know, I think it, it's uh, what what we're facing is, look, I'd, I'd, I'd hate to say it's catastrophic, but, but I think that, you know, the longer it goes and the harder it is to turn around, I think, you know, what we're going to end up with are households that rent for life. And at the moment, our retirement system is predicated, you know, on home ownership. So, you know, we're looking at households that would be renting for life and possibly retiring, you know, into poverty. Mm. You're in Canberra right now to launch this report. Um, and there's no doubt, like you said, there's so many touch points with housing. And it's a really, really complex problem. But while you're in the seat of Parliament there, what are you pushing for? Look, there's a there's a number of things. And not all of these, you know, are related to the Commonwealth Government. Um, you know, there are also um, features, you know, that states and territories can respond to. But one of the things that we would really like to see, so National Cabinet in August, you know, came forward um, with a rental reform package. And we really welcomed that package. But what we would really like to see um, added to that package of rental reform for National Cabinet 
is uh, a fairness formula that is applied uh, to how much rents are able to be increased. So at the moment, you know, rental regulations, you know, will say, oh, well, a rental increase, you know, needs to be, let's say it's fair. But there's no formula that's attached to that. So here in the ACT, for example, there is a formula, um, you know, that provides... Uh, you know, for, for how much rents are able to increase. Other states and territories don't have that. And so it means that, you know, rent increases can be triple figures, uh, you know, not necessarily, you know, aligned to, you know, the, the quality of the property or any sort of um, enhancements that have been made to it. So that, that's one of the really critical aspects. But the other aspect too that is needed is around tax reform for negative gearing and capital gains tax, um, you know, to particularly recalibrate what is going on in the housing market. And, you know, and that's something only the Commonwealth can do. From a, a state and territory perspective, I mean, what one of the things that states and territories could be doing is providing rental um, support subsidy programs for those households who are facing housing insecurity and likely to become homeless. Um, you know, we need to be doing everything that we can to keep people housed uh, and not falling into homelessness because once people, you know, do um, fall out of housing and into homelessness, it can be really difficult, you know, for those households to be, you know, to be rehoused, um, you know, and get back into the into the housing market. National Shelter CEO Emma Greenholch, thanks for joining me from Parliament House today. Great, thank you. City lights are driving me crazy As I walk the lonely street You might recognise this one. It's a 1979 tune called Streets of Old Fitzroy and it's also been added to the Sounds of Australia collection. It's a song about challenges of living in Fitzroy which became Victoria's largest Aboriginal community. Oh, I wish that I was back in the dream time. Those voices belong to Harry and Wilga Munro-Williams singing their love for and connection to their country. And we're going to head to a lovely part of the country, to a small part of the Great Barrier Reef World Heritage Area. The rangers there are learning new skills to protect and preserve a place of cultural significance, Yunbanan or Magnetic Island. They say the process is helping them connect with country and share cultural knowledge. Rachel Merritt has the story. The small coastal community of Magnetic Island is home to just over 2,000 residents. But its natural beauty draws hundreds of thousands of visitors to its shores every year. From beaches to forests to coral reefs, it's a place traditional owners want to preserve and protect for future generations. Here we're trying to um, get our land and our seed up to a um, a suitable environmental um, stage where, where people who want to come here can come here and fish. They can come here and relax. But the island is facing threats such as coral bleaching, coastal erosion and climate change. Wargarugaba elder Brian Johnson is part of a group of First Nations rangers who are ramping up their efforts to protect the culturally significant lands. We're on the third largest port. Um, we've got a big channel that's running through here. We have one major incident, oil spill. It can destroy half the island. Um, not only the land side of it, but the animal side of it. If that's destroyed and they wait for it for 10 years to clear up, 
That's 10 years you won't get on. People will go broke doing tourism. Um, nobody will come here and start up a job because people don't want to come and look at an oil spill or where everything's dead. So if it happens, you're going to get caught up at least 10 years to clean things up if you can clean it up and if the marine life come back. Known as the Yumbanan Land and Sea Rangers, the small but dedicated team is learning new skills, such as flying drones to monitor the coastline and open water diving to check the health of coral. Ranger Hayden Saltner says regular data collection will allow them to better protect native marine species, such as dugongs. From, you know, doing fish monitoring, from doing health checks for our mangrove sites, for our um, salt marches. Um, it gives us, you know, it gives us a visual picture of what it has looked like in the past and it gives us, you know, information on what has been infecting it as well too. So if we can do, a, if we can work in a way that can, you know, help counteract those sort of impacts so that our marine life can, you know, continue thriving. Um, collecting the, this information and data comes a long way there because it gives us the information and, you know, direction to, you know, to help better our marine life. Part of the framework includes checking the island's cultural sites on a monthly basis. Ranger Kenneth Newman says they're mostly protected from visitors. We've got a few sites on the island. Um, we've got some rock art, um, we've got some middens and uh, some burial sites that needs to be still um, look, looked at. We found some um, grinding um, stones, some areas where um, our ancestors were grinding those, the rocks. Um, yeah, we just want to look after that because that's our history. And the project is also helping share knowledge with other First Nations rangers along the Queensland coast. Ranger Shannon Duncan says it's helped him learn more about cultural land management practices. It's yeah, just good to engage with that sort of things because they can uh, tell us a lot more, um, a lot about it. Um, not just that, all our men's business, um, which is a big thing as well. So there's heaps of stuff that I do not know about law, but um, it's where we can get back to and um, the mob like for sharing their stories, I guess. So yeah, and just helping us, you know, uh, helping us younger generation. So uh, from storytelling um, to everything, to mapping sites, trading sites, um, there's, there's no other feeling than going back to them sites and just, just yeah, taking it all in, I guess. Um, but yeah, like even, it's just a story in general, you know, to go and, just to go and see all them rock, those rock art sites, um, because yeah, they've got a they tell a story in its own and um, not just that, well, we can add on to it. And the project has also helped create connections closer to home. Because now I just consider them mates for life. Um, it's one of those things. Um, but no, they're honestly great people. Um, they're very good to have a laugh with. So, um, But no, the main thing is that we always look here for each other. And thanks to our reporter, Rachel Merritt, for that story from the Queensland coast. 
This next Sound of Australia is absolutely fascinating. It was produced in 1961 and it was called The Death of a Wombat. It was an award-winning radio documentary by writer and producer Ivan Smith and composer George S. English. It's created for the Australian Broadcasting Commission, which we now know as the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, exactly where I'm standing, or the ABC. The documentary tells the story of a wombat's day, a bushfire, and the effect of the bushfire on the animals of the area, including the death of the titular wombat. The dingo moves himself to his feet with the shouting flame 200 yards away. He shakes himself briefly like a dog and then tilts back his head with the action of a wolf and he starts forward, moving easily to meet the fire. And as he moves, his body sinks lower and the paws work harder on the ground, giving an athlete's rhythm, working harder. And then the long, lean head sits low and the body gathers speed with a powerful galloping action of the paws. And seconds before he meets the flames, the dingo reaches cheetah speed and plunges through them, eyes shut, head thrust down between the flashing forward legs. Wow, what a beautiful use of language. That was The Death of a Wombat, which was produced in 1961. And the voice there you could hear was Ivan Smith. I'm going to take you to the town of Wadamana in the central highlands of Tasmania now. Wadamana was an old hydro town. It was made up of seven houses, garages, a medical centre and an old tennis court, which is heritage listed, actually. The hydro facility it closed down in 1995. And believe it or not, one couple, the Ottos, owns half the town of Wadamana. The purchase was a snap decision made by the couple during the pandemic and the couple, Leah and Kurt, bought it sight unseen. She chatted to Sarah Abbott in the valley of Wadamana. Leah, we're hanging out right in front of your food van parked in downtown Wadamana at the moment. What's been popular on the menu today? Pumpkin soup today because we've had the riders from the Tassie gift through and they all want something warm for breakfast. Uh, but other than that, the gluten-free black forest cake and focaccia with a lemon yogurt cheese. They've been popular as well, yeah. And you uh, just make your menu up as you go a bit, don't you? I do. Because I'm retired, what I do is on Thursdays I decide what I'm going to cook. Fridays I start the cooking process and take some photos and I post it up on Facebook and that's how people know what's going to be here. And to give people an idea of Watermana, because your food van's not parked in just your everyday food van location, it's a little bit different this spot, isn't it? Can you describe the town for people who've never visited? So Watermana was a hydro town. It has, still has a hydro museum here, uh, but the power stations were decommissioned, the last one in 1974. So basically after that, the town shut down. I got a little busier then when the wind farm was built, but in the last few years had really become very quiet to the point now where we are the only, my husband and I are the only two permanent residents of Watermana and we own the west side of Watermana, so we're the Watermana Westies and we're about two hours from Hobart and forever away from everything else and it's fantastic, yeah. And you kind of glossed over a very interesting detail there, Leah, in that you basically own about half of this town, don't you? Can you tell us how that came to be? Well, uh, I'd spent a lot of my wasted youth in Tasmania and we had always decided we'd come back here to retire. And in 2021, we were sitting up in New South Wales, which was the worst place to be in the world for, for COVID, 
And I was dreaming about retirement in about four years. And I went, you know what? We should just go now. And I saw an ABC article about buy half a town in Tasmania. And that's what we did. And we decided to make the move. And it has been absolutely the best move we've made. Because you weren't able to inspect the town before you bought it either. (laughs) Sight unseen. We were still in quarantine when everything went through, the contract went through. So the day we got out of quarantine, uh, we went to uh, our lawyer's office in Hobart and picked up one single key. You know, like those big grandfather keys? That's what we picked up. And the next morning we drove up here to Watamana and found our town. Yeah. So it was quite interesting. It was one of the biggest risks we've taken in our life. And I think one of the things we've learned is sometimes risk is really good. Yes. What was the feeling in the car that day driving up here? Well, we drove and drove because we were staying in Judbury, which meant it was nearly four hours. Oh, Currawong's talking too. It was nearly four hours drive up here by the time we found our way. And we came into the valley and I just fell in love with it. It was so beautiful. And then we saw it was quite derelict and we went, oh my goodness, what have we done? And it was a very quiet drive back to Judbury that afternoon. And then the next morning we came back and had another look around and really explored and went, it was gonna, it's going to be all right. It's going to be fine. So you had that period of real worry when what you thought... What have we done? What have we done? <laughs> and it wore off. It was, it's about that sense of, no, this is about what can be, not what is. Yeah. And that's what we, I think we saw is the potential for Watamana and that it is central. Well, I mean, we're literally a kilometre away from the centre of Tasmania. So seven houses a set of tennis courts, a community hall, what have I missed that you own here? Ah, yes, seven houses, many garages that have popped up over the years, the old medical centre which we're renovating, a tennis court that needs a lot of attention but it's heritage listed so that's going to take a while, about 17 acres, three wombats, a million wallabies, two echidnas that live with us, a platypus about 20 metres from our back door, deer, Tasmanian devils, and a whole lot of peace and tranquility. Yeah. And on, along those lines, you mentioned that Watermana is currently on the list of abandoned towns in Tasmania. Yes, our wonderful internet, and I do love the internet, but on the web, um, you can search Watermana and find it in the list of abandoned towns in Tasmania. It is not abandoned, but I think probably it felt like that a few years ago. And uh, so we're just out to prove that Watermana isn't abandoned, and it's actually the place to be. What have you enjoyed most about your Watermana adventure so far? I think what I've enjoyed most is the sense that I'm incredibly busy. My husband, Kurt, he's incredibly busy and we've got an enormous list of things to do, but we're really happy and really feeling like this is where we should be. The beautiful sounds of the valley there, it does make you want to go there. Leah Otto, who was chatting to our reporter, Sarah Abbott. Now, 
That's not a sound I'd connect to Australia at all, but in the early 20th century, the harmonica, or tin sandwich as it was known, was the closest thing to a national instrument. There was even national mouth organ competitions in the 1920s and 30s. And the person behind this tin sandwich is Percival Claude Spouse, and he was Australia's most successful harmonica player from the 1920s to the 1940s. And our final sound of Australia for today's show is one burnt into many of our brains. And I use that word burnt on purpose. The slip, slop, slap jingle was written for the Anti-Cancer Council of Victoria. And it was a campaign to combat high rates of skin cancer in Australia. Let's have a listen. Slip, slop, slap. Big thumb up. If you're going to flip a shrimp onto the barbie or slap on a chop or just do anything under the sun, don't forget to flip on a shirt. Slap on a hat and slop on a sunscreen. A number 15 for maximum protection. Then you won't end up sizzling like a sausage. <laughs> sunscreen back then was a maximum protection of 15. Imagine that now today. It's mostly 50. That is Australia wide for this Tuesday. I'm Sinead Bangan. I hope you're having a lovely evening. Cheerio. This is an ABC podcast.